Welcome to the Cannabivarum Podcast, the Cannabis Truth Podcast. I speak the language of cannabis freely and uncensored while educating my audience on the safe use of this live plant therapy. You should know what's in your cannabis, what's good and what's not. It does not come with an FDA stamp of approval yet. Using cannabis mindfully as medication is a different concept in the healthcare philosophy of the past hundred years. There's a lot to learn and consider. Cannabis is not dangerous, but it is not harmless either. This is Honey Smith Walls, a 21st century cannabis shaman, here to explain the language of cannabis in historical, political, and scientific terms so you can make educated decisions about the medicine you ingest. Hello, my friends. We're jumping back into the stories and books of the rogue warrior poet, Mike Tucker. This American hero and storyteller seems like a genie on a magical ride around our world. Listen as he shares the secret hacks of great writers, said to be worth more than the King Solomon mines that he learned from Cool Papa, as he calls Hemingway. This final episode will reveal an intimate look into a Ronin warrior poet as he travels the globe on missions, saving thousands from grave peril. You'll hear his strong opinions on current events in Afghanistan in what he calls the American strategy of IED magnets. This Native American son, descendants of the Mohicans, Rogue Warrior Poet, Mike Tucker, right now. Well, I am thrilled to have my audience get to spend a little time with you, honey, and learn about all of your incredible experiences. Uh, I, I, I hope the first thing that they will do is go to Amazon and look up your books and tell me the, the name of the first one again that you wrote. The, the first, well, the, the first, my fiction is, is, is the, the best of, of my stuff. Uh, so Rogue by Mike Tucker, right, is, the, yes. is number one. Rogue by Mike Tucker is R O G U E. That's right, Rogue, R-O-G-U-E. And then that's the number one in the, the Rogue trilogy. And then number number one in the Chieftain trilogy, which is the sequel to the Rogue trilogy, number one is East River, right? East oh. River. And then Cigarettes in the Rain, of course, which I just wrote, yeah. based based on the, the, the real-life counterterrorist operation I was on in the Marines where we had Delta Force on point, and that was a joint operation. We saved 26,000 lives, including over 25,000 American lives on Okinawa, summer of 88, Cigarettes in the Rain by Mike Tucker, volume three of the Rogue Trilogy. I'm sorry, volume three of the Chieftain Trilogy. And then and then for the journey. What I want to read first is For Suzanne. Oh, yeah, read For Suzanne. That For Suzanne is volume two. For Suzanne is volume two of the Journey Trilogy. So just plug in For Suzanne, Mike Tucker. It's got the great cover photo from Qingwangdao, North China, on the North China coast, which is where I wrote part of the book and which also figures in, in the book. Mike, tell our readers your formula, will you? I mean, your, your thought process as you're writing and what your little hacks are. You know, some people write uh, on a laptop and some people have to have a piece of paper in front of them. What, what do you do? Oh, I write on a laptop 100%. Even when I'm writing poetry, I write on a laptop. Of course, I learned on a typewriter years ago. And luckily, I had the greatest typewriter teacher in the world in high school, you know, before, <laughs> before I went to James Madison University for my BA in history. And 
she she was great because she was tough on us, but she was cool. She was one of those kind of teachers. And wow. so she 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 would hear the typewriter keys rattling, right? It's like 30 oh, yeah. of us, right? And 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 then she would say, and and she wouldn't say, she would snap her fingers. She she'd raise her right hand, snap her fingers, and and she'd look at us, and then we'd stop typing. And she'd oh, say, funny. and then and then she'd say, Well, you all want to know why I did that. And I did that just so I could hear the silence. <laughs> Oh. I bet that woman did that in every typewriter class she ever had. I bet she did. I bet she did. And her husband was a teacher there also, and he was uh, he was a math teacher. And sometimes he would drop by because he loved her so much, and she loved seeing him. And and then he he was so cool. He would stand there at the doorway, right? And some of us could see him because of the angle, right? Uh-huh. And we just kind of nod to each other and smile, you know, uh-huh. and and then and then she would tell the class when that when that happened, she would tell the class class and then we would all stop typing. Now, I need you to be silent for the next two to three minutes because I have to talk. And this is how she said, I kid you not. Uh-huh. And, and he was she, she was uh, she was Greek and Italian. This this woman. And she said, I have to talk to my lover man. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, and my God. To say those words to a bunch of, of high, teenage boys teenage in a typing right. class. We were, all, we were all juniors. We were 17 years old. We were juniors. And, and she was and, gorgeous, I'm oh, sure. Yeah. And, and I remember when we walked out of class and then there was this, this guy I was running the track with. And... Uh, and and he was a sprinter. I'd, I'd known him since junior high. He was a really good sprinter. And and I was a miler and two miler at that time when I was seventeen. And um, and he and he and he shakes his head, and and he says, "You know something, Mike?" I said, "Yeah." Her husband is a lucky man. <laughs> <laughs> That is sweet envy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and, and I said, I said, yeah, he is. But I tell you what, you know, years to come, you'll probably meet a, a woman like her and you'll be lucky. And with any luck, so will I. <laughs> oh. Yeah, something I else. Bet you've met a lot of women who have loved you, Mike Turner, with all of your service experiences as a counter-terrorist operative in the Marines and and all of your poetry and all of your fabulous stories that you've written. Oh my, it just seems, you know, hey, what are you doing? Are you going to write anything about cancer? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, honey. And, and by the way, that, that's not the first interview where somebody called me Mike Turner. I am Mike Tucker. You know, oh, but did I say Turner? You did. You oh did. God, I'm sorry. So, Here, you so can call me Holly. Both of us, that's right. I called you Holly, you called me Mike Turner. We're even. <laughs> so, God, I'm uh, sorry, Mike. Uh, let's see. You know, I have to say, I wouldn't rule it out, but I there's a there's a process in writing we call writing it out. And so to your great audience, uh, when you read For Suzanne by Mike Tucker on Amazon, this was one of the books where I wrote it out. And when we talk about that, we're talking about you're writing out your pain, your grief from a specific incident in real life. Yes. And then it transforms as your, your, and you feel it. It's not just your subconscious in your conscious mind. You know what you're doing there. And you, you come to the end of each day's work in that time. For me, it was about a week of the time when I was writing for Suzanne on the North China coast in, in 2016 and 17. And then you come to the, the, the end of that time for me, that was about a week. And you say to yourself, I've written out that grief. I've written out that pain. That sorrow is no longer in my heart because I've written it out and it's transformed now in this, in this novella in a mysterious way into something much richer and deeper. And, and as Hemingway said, you make it truer than 
it happened in real life. That's glorious. And, yeah, That's thank you. Really glorious. Thank you. Thanks so much. And then for me, with the cancer, for example, when I wrote and when I wrote Rogue, I wrote Rogue. I I had the the goal was I'm going to write all three books in the Rogue trilogy before December 1st, before Christmas 2000, uh, 2020. And I looked at my radiation treatment schedule. I looked at my post re radiation treatment and everything. And I said, Hey, I beat two Burmese army battalions. They didn't take me down. I, I beat them in, in 2002. I could do this. So that, yeah, that 40 days in 2020, March 24th of, of 2020, first day of radiation treatment, all the way up to about May 18th, May 19th. And, and so when, when I met the, uh, the, the Stone Cold Righteous Taos twins, Amelia and Andrea, Amelia and Andrea, I hope oh. you're listening to this. <laughs> angel, <laughs> angel fire, Amelia, God bless you. They're the oh. Taos twins. They're real twins. Yeah? So when, when I was going through the radiation treatments, they, they were there. At, they're part of the radiation team at UNM Cancer Center where I got the radiation treatments. So my, I, I literally wrote out that pain and that grief and that feeling of yeah. maybe this cancer is going to eat me alive yeah. while I was writing Rogue. So when I got to the end of that 195 pages I wrote in that 40 days for Rogue, I realized I've done it. I've written out this grief and this sorrow and it's transformed in Rogue into something, you know, strange and marvelous and, and, and also rich. Also transformative in you. True. It? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, do, when you, when you um, have an inkling that you're going to do a book about a story, do you like jot down the, the spine or the skeleton of the story and then write around that or you know, do you, is there, is there an outline for you or do you just start writing and it happens? Oh, I, I always, once I get an idea for a story, because so much of what I learned about writing in my twenties came straight from cool Papa H. Oh, and he has studied, the studied too. him. Yeah. Yeah. And his practical advice on writing is is money in the bank. It's worth more than King Solomon's minds. One of Hemingway's gems was once you get an idea for a story or a novel, you sit down and you jot it down. You make sure you write it down and anything and everything that comes to mind in that moment, you make sure you write it because otherwise you can forget it. And it is forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then all the yeah. juice, all the energy and everything you bring to the book in the actual writing of it comes from that moment. So like, for I instance, see what you're, saying. you're going to capture the emotion around it when you write it down the first time as it happens. Exactly. So with writing, for instance, with with well, looking at Rogue, for instance, which is based on a true story. When I got the story, the true story of Rogue, of the mysterious American who hunted down the Gestapo spy ring in December 1940 in Portugal and saved Jewish refugees. Oh Whoa. Gosh. And then, of course, in writing it, then later on in writing it, it when I was under the cancer treatment. So that was that was uh, February 24th, 2019. I got the story, but I didn't I didn't write it because I had other books and so on. And then finally, during the cancer treatment, I started and I said, I'm going to write the rope trilogy. I'm going to nail it. And. And so when writing it, that's when everything else came in. That's when uh, Maria Santos came in. Well, right. Who I named Nikki first, but then I told you why I, I changed your name to Maria. Okay, mm -hmm. fun. So that the love story of Jed and Maria and so much of the rest of the book fleshed itself out in the writing. But the basic frame of that I already had. And I took that true story and then I double tapped it. I, I checked with fishermen down the coast whose grandfathers were also involved in the refugee network in Portugal in 1940 and had a direct hand in getting Jewish refugees and gypsies and refugees from all walks of life out of Portugal to New York City and to Canada 
in 1940 and, and actually many of them all the way up through the war. So, oh so when, so that was the process for that. Now with, on the other hand, with for Suzanne, for Suzanne is a completely created work, completely inspired work. So when I got the idea, when I was in the field, jogging in the snow and then talking mm-hmm. to farmers and, and, and so on, then immediately I came back from, from jogging that day. It was cold. I'm mean, North China. The Siberian winds come down, just roaring down Siberia. And I mean, it was cold. You know, I had ice on my watch cap, ice on my face, everything. But I loved it. And and then I I took a long, hot bath. And then I sat down and I just jotted down. This is for Suzanne. And then I thought to myself, where in the hell did I get this title for Suzanne? But I thought, don't worry about that. Right. You've got the book. You've got the story. It's a fantastic story. Nomad. The American mercenary, 53 years old, in North China, in 1938, throwing down on the opium dealers and throwing down against Japanese spies and throwing down against uh, Japanese intelligence and Japanese infantry. And who is with him? He is he is working hand in glove. He is shoulder to shoulder with Chinese revolutionaries and guerrilla fighters. And so. This is it. This is your story. Boom. Let it rock. And then the next day I began writing. Oh, my gosh. The Siberian winds uh, made their presence felt there on the North China coast. They sure did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No kidding. No kidding. I, I'm just I'm just uh, so amazed and and uh, feel like you've got a thousand more stories to tell in you. Man, you feel that way. Oh, many, many more stories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One one of my one of my favorite maxims, which by the grace of God, I came up with is life is in front of us. Oh, it certainly is. Yeah, life (laughs) is in front of us. And this the book I'm writing now, Paco and Giselle, is going to be 140 pages, a novella. It's a standalone it's going to it's going to make a fantastic movie like all my books are oh my gosh. <laughs> it, it's going to make a fantastic movie just like the road trilogy the chieftain trilogy the journey trilogy and luckily oh. reviewers are saying that about my books now right but yes. Paco and Giselle when I think about how I came to write Paco and Giselle as I was telling Daniel Serrano my literary agent the other day I said Daniel I never would have written this book if I had not come to New Mexico and he oh, and he nodded and he said, you're absolutely right, because I didn't come up with the idea for Paco and Giselle until about eight weeks ago. Right. And I was fin- I was I was writing cigarettes in the rain at that time, which is now published. And 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 I thought, whoa, a Mexican farmer, 19 years old, his his wife, 17 that's still true in the rural areas of Oh God, it's still yeah, of course it is. And of Mexico. And they're in northern Mexico. They're a couple hundred miles from from the New Mexico border. Uh-huh. And the cartels want to steal his land and force him to be their slave and grow poppies oh so they can make heroin and so on. And and so and, and what's the beauty of the love story here? The beauty of the love story is that Paco and Giselle grew up together in this village. They know they've known each other since they were three years old. Oh, and, oh, I can't wait. Yeah. And, and when is it set? What's the actual time for it? September 2021. Paco was born in 2002. Giselle, his beautiful, luscious, stone cold, righteous wife. She was born in 2004. How yeah. Oh, a contemporary love story is just going to be wonderful. Paco and Giselle. Paco and Giselle. And love rocks. The, the soul of Paco and Giselle is love rocks. That's fantastic. Yeah. We all yeah. can't wait, Mike. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Paco and Giselle is coming up. That'll be published on September 17th. And of course, film rights are available for it. And then like all my stuff. And then after that, I write The Long Ride, which is going to be about 210 pages based on a legend from the great American West, which has and and that has a direct connection to uh, to 
both the Chieftain trilogy and the the Rogue trilogy because the one of the main characters, not the main character, the main character, is the, the Colonel, is only referred to, which is where I got the legend. But he's from Northern California, and meanwhile, one of the one of his uh, spies is the um, is the the grandfather of uh, Jed McCullough in Rogue. Oh, the intrigue! Yeah, and and here's the juice. The, the, and I got this legend in the Marines, and I obviously waited a long time to write it till, till the right time. So in the, the long ride, uh, the legend is that there was an American. He was he was Irish refugee, and he had he had immigrated from Ireland to New York City, and then across the the West. And he was and he was in the gold rush in '49, mm-hmm. and he he came to the United States in '46 in in the famine, escaping the famine like so many Irish refugees. And I'm Irish on my father's side. And Mary Harris was my great great grandmother. She arrived at 16 years old on a on a ship from Dublin, and all okay. her family had died in the in the famine. She was originally from Connaught, Ireland. Yeah. Mary Harris, God, God bless her. Mary Harris, you're my great, great grandmother. You're up there in heaven and I love you. Oh, how precious. My grandmother yeah. is always with me. I bet they're together right now. My grandmother, you know, comes through in so many precious ways uh, right? throughout my day or week. You know, she's just always with me. I love that your grandmother is always with you. That's precious. Yeah, it, it's, it sure is. I think it's no, you're so right. I really appreciate you saying that. And and, and and much much happiness uh, to you and to all your family and especially your your, your grandmother um, the so the long ride is uh, is about this mysterious cat and and the, the thing about the legend was I served with a lot of because I was in Hawaii if you serve out of Pendleton or in Hawaii in the Marines you serve with all westerners because a lot of the Marines at that time in the eighties, a lot of the Marines that, that, uh, especially in combat arms, a lot of them that, that, uh, were stationed in Pendleton or in Hawaii, uh, were from the West because that's when the Marine Corps had the East of the Mississippi. If you're recruited East of the Mississippi, you go to Paris Island. If you, if, and, and you're going to be in second Marine division, likely real, real high likelihood. And then meanwhile, if you're recruited West of the Mississippi, then you're you're going to go to Pendleton. You're going to go to San Diego for your your boot camp. Oh, and then interesting. Yeah, and then meanwhile, see, I had signed for six years. So what happened to me was because I signed for six, and I knew this when I signed. In fact, I I, I got all the the scoop on this when I signed. Mm-hmm. I, I told the recruiter if I sign for six, do I have choice of duty station? He said yes. If you sign for four, you don't. I said, so if I sign for six, I get choice of duty station. I can choose Hawaii. He said, that's right. I said, well, hell yeah, I'm taking choice of duty station. I'm going to again put, then uh, I'm signing for Hawaii. He said, right on. So when I volunteered and only took 15 minutes, by the way, the recruiting sergeant looks at me, I'm sitting on the stoop in Washington uh-huh. DC inside the recruiting station that at that time was 12th and G Northwest. And, uh, and, and he, he comes up, he says, so I, I guess you want to, volunteer for the marines and i said <laughs> and, I, and i said i said that's right and I'm, I'm here to i'm here to sign today and i want marine infantry and special operations and he and he folded his arms he says you sure about that and i said if i wasn't sure about that i wouldn't be here sergeant and he smiled and he said let's go inside so we went inside and he said well i've got all these videos and things i've got to show you i said i don't need to see any of that I was under fire in Barcelona at the siege of Banco Central. He said, what's wrong? Oh. I said, it was a counter-terrorist operation. It was, a, it was a great honor, and it changed the history of Spain in every good way. We stopped the fascists. He said, oh, okay, all right. Well, I'll bring out the paperwork. He brought the paperwork. I signed. He said, well, son, we're going to have to get you your physical, and you'll be at Paris Island in, in uh, about the first week of January. And so that was that, you know, wow. and that's, that's how I, I went in. And the, the great thing for me out of all that was a, I survived B uh, the, the greatest thing wasn't 
just that I survived. The greatest thing was being a, a part of that incredible operation mm-hmm. in the summer of 1988. That's the, that's that cigarettes in the rain, of course. Uh, wow. And and knowing that we saved over 26,000 lives. It's and at the end, many thanks. And at the end of that operation, honey, I I looked at the cats in in the room. The dust had settled. We were confident that we had taken down and Delta Force had taken down, especially uh, all the Japanese Red Army Brigade terrorists on the island and the death threat against the Okinawan police, which was over a thousand Okinawan police and their families. And the death threat against 25,000 Americans was now rendered moot to say the least. And, 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 uh, and and the Japanese Red Army Brigade terrorists were were done and done, job done. And I had a hand in that, and I was so glad about that. But I looked at those cats and I said, "Be grateful that we were in exactly the right place at exactly the right time to take care of business and save lives." And and man, I now especially because the classified window on that was, well, it was shut. The classified window was shut for 88 to 2013. That operation was classified. And now I finally get the chance to tell the world this great thing happened. And I'll never forget looking at the children crossing the bridge, which is in the book. I won't tell you where you'll find it. Okay. And, and, and that's, that's that, that whole first chapter is completely as it went down. And, Watching the children cross the bridge after the, 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 the long, dark night, eight hours of counter-terrorist guard duty at the most exposed post and ev- where everything, as you'll see, where everything went down. And, and seeing the children cross the bridge at dawn and they're on their way to school and they're from the farming village where I had jogged wow. through the village before I knew some of the farmers. And I just thought to myself in that moment, that's what it's about. These kids that's are going to walk about. across that bridge alive. They're going to go to school today alive. They're going to come back from school alive. And we're going to take down these terrorist rat punk blankety blanks. Wow. Wow. Wow, Mike. I need to I need to read the book and then I need to see the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. All of them. Wow, yeah. I, I can tell. Uh, I can tell we're going to be binging um, um, Mike Tucker uh, books for uh, from here to ever. It looks like, and then we're going to have to start a, a whole campaign to get these on uh, on the big screen. Your your stories are just amazing. They're gobsmacking to me. I'm so tickled to have met you. I'm so tickled to get to hear on a firsthand basis from the mouth of one of our real American heroes. I can't thank you enough for our service. Nobody can thank you enough for the service that you have given back to our country and to all of the people in those other countries. Who does that? I mean, there aren't that many people who, who do what you do. Are there? No, they're they're not. They're not. No. And I and 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 before I say anything else, I want to say uh, thank you so much for the incredibly high praise. I can't tell you how much. I mean, that means so much to me. I I appreciate oh, it from the bottom of my heart. But truth is, yeah, there's not many of us. Ronan, of course, I'm as far as counterterrorism in the field. I'm retired now, so I still do counterterrorism analysis. But uh, looking at, you know, answering your question directly, there's not many Ronin around. Right. And and yet in every generation, there are enough. It's but a we wouldn't hear about them anyway, would we, as the general public? You guys yeah. are a big, and the thing, big secret. The thing is, a lot. I'm the only Ronin that, you know, as, as, uh, as a buddy of mine who's retired Ronin, he's British, and he's former SAS. And he operated in the same, some of the same places I did. The only place he didn't work that I worked was straight to Malacca. Um, and, and uh, I'll just call him Jake. That's, that's not his name. I'll just call him Jake. So, and he's, 
he's he's back in the UK now for the rest of his life. He's a little younger than me, he's about fifty six, and and we were talking the other day, and he said, "Mate, I was thinking," and I said to my wife, <laughs> "I said, darling, do you know that Mike Tucker is the only one of us Ronin?" And she looked at me and she said, "You're a Ronin." I am the princess married to a Ronin. <laughs> oh my God! And and he I said, "I love that. I love the yeah, voices too." Yeah, and 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 uh, just the coolest thing she said to him. And then I said, "Well, that's man. That's incredible. What else? What else uh, did y'all talk about?" He said, "Well, you know, I thanked her for that lovely, lovely thing. Because that's why I married her. She says such lovely things to me." <laughs> and, and I, I. I said, Mike Tucker is the only Ronin who can really write about what we do and write it right from the heart. I could never do that. I, I, it's enough for me that we did it. But if you sit down with me, love, and, and you say, so tell me about this hostage rescue mission in Oman, or tell me about this raid against Al-Qaeda, or taking down an Al-Qaeda fan- financier in Europe, then I would just look at you, darling, and I would say, well, the hostage rescue mission is we, we, we had three mates and I was one of them and Mike was another and fella from New Zealand was another. And we put together the plan and we executed the mission. We killed the terrorists, saved the hostages, got them out alive and got them in a, in a chopper. And, and that's that's what that's all it was. But and then and then he said, well, then my wife looked at me and said, but I want more. And he, said, and, and he said, I looked at my darling wife and I said, that's all I can tell you, darling. You'd have to have Mike. Mike can tell you more. I can just tell you that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. See, I, I, when I met my spouse, he told me I could no longer have a curiosity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I was never able to ask any pointed questions. And mm-hmm. so getting to hear your juicy details is just fascinating to me. Because well, <laughs> I still, you know, even then, even though he's been retired and all of his stuff has been declassified, I know better than to ask. I won't yeah. ask ever. Right. That's I don't right. Need, I don't need to know that information. Yeah. 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 I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I want to honor his vow, uh, you know, of silence mm-hmm. to, to protect our country. So that yeah. was just as, you know, my not asking was just as important to me as uh, his not ever being able to tell me. Oh, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've had people that were in combat with me, especially from Delta Force, who have uh, from from the the first tour in Iraq, and they've they they've talked to me and said, you know, one of the re- really valuable things you do is that simply, I can say to my wife, look at look at Rogue by right. Mike Tucker, or look right. at Force of Man, yeah, or look then at you'll Smith understand, Man. yeah, yeah. And, and and you understand. I think just that alone, Mike, is a real service to spouses uh, for, you know, um, for understanding and being able to live with, um, you know, all the PTSD that comes along with being a spouse of somebody in, in, you know, or a love, a lover, a parent or whoever it is, you know, a sibling, whoever it is who loves you and is fearful for you and, and wants to know that you're safe and, and wants to learn about the experiences that you've had because good night, nobody practically, well, there's just not, I just don't know many people who've had experiences like you. Yeah. You know, that they've ever been able to talk about. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the other, the other thing in play here and, I'm going to answer your question about PTSD, which I, I apologize for because I didn't answer before. Um, the other thing is, as a poet, you're born with a natural empathy, but you're also born with a natural ability, just you're born with it, to express yourself and to talk about your feelings directly uh, 
in in a way that a lot of folks appreciate, right? I mean, when we read Robert Frost, it touches our hearts directly. But of course, the reality is not everybody can write poetry in the first place and certainly write as at that level like Robert Frost. And yet Robert Frost touches the hearts of millions and millions and millions of people, and he always will. Yeah. So talking about PTSD, answering your question, that is the same question, the one you asked much earlier, is the same question that a U.S. Army major who's a trained psychiatrist, psychologist, masters in psychology, psychiatry, et cetera, asked me in Afghanistan after the, the trauma mm-hmm. of the, the deaths of, of Jeff Hall, mm-hmm. and Matt Wilson, Opie, and O.G. Right. Now, uh, the agreement that I had uh, with the uh, DOD was that, um, as the same one I had in, in uh, Iraq, by the way, because I was seeing so much combat, I, I went through the same, and I signed for this. I, I, knew, I knew when I accepted the embed uh, as an embedded counterterrorism specialist, backslash, mm-hmm. backslash embedded author in, in both Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I knew that I would go through a, what they call a psych, psychological evaluation. The, the shorthand for that is a psych eval at the end of every tour. Right. Um, okay. And so, and, 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 and as it said in my paperwork, in the document, and, and at any other time as the U.S. Army uh, or, or in U.S. military, you know, in the case of Western Rock, the second time the, the Marines uh, says is necessary. So because I'm such a good friend of, of Jeff Hall, especially, but, but also all those cats, I, mm-hmm. I knew them, knew them well. Um, the the that U.S. Army range that U.S. Army major was interviewing uh, all the uh, soldiers in that company, Bravo Company, uh, in Tenth Mountain. I think it was first the. Apologize for not remembering the, the battalion exactly, but so Bravo Company, everybody was interviewed, and lo and behold, the um, I was I was one of the last, and I actually I asked to be one of the last. I said I said put the soldiers first, put the commanders, platoon commanders, platoon leaders first, etc., mm-hmm. and and then I was one of the last, and she she said, Mike, I've looked at your jacket, so I knew she'd read my file because uh-huh. the, the Pentagon had a file on me, and I've read your jacket, and you've done these incredible things as a Ronin, as a counterterrorist Ronin, and. Uh, You've, you you were in the Marines, and there was an operation in, in Okinawa that was classified, and that's when I knew she'd really read my jacket. And I yeah. said, yeah, that's – and at that time, it was still classified. It was 2009. I said, it's still classified. She said, right. So I have a question for you. I said, go ahead. Why don't you have PTSD? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I looked at her, and I said – I don't know the answer to that. If I if I knew the answer to that, then I'd be happy to tell you. But perhaps it's because the first time I was under fire in Spain, in Barcelona, in a, in a counter terrorist operation that well and truly changed in, in every good way, and yeah. changed the history of Europe in every good way, and stopped. And I looked at her. I said it just like this: and stop the Nazis from coming back to power in Spain. And being a part of that and knowing how how real it was and how much a difference I was fortunate to make and how righteous it was. Well, it makes me look at combat perhaps in a different way than I suppose it does, because you you succeeded and you've got that glory to wash over you every time some bad image or memory comes back, don't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that must be the balance, the yin and the yang of, uh, of God, I didn't say that right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I think, PTSD I think you're so right. Consolation and getting past it. Plus, did, didn't you write about it instantly? I mean, whenever you could, didn't you pour the stories out and doesn't that help too? Isn't it like, is it writing kind of like talk therapy? 
is it cathartic? I mean, does it help you get past uh, the PTSD of war, you know, and of all of the intrigue that you suffer? Because that's got to be nerve wracking. Well, here's the juice. I because I never had PTSD, I never I, I never felt like as strange as this may sound, experiences. I never I never felt like I was suffering when I was in combat. I was where I wanted to be. Wow. That is just that is just so amazing. So universal the universal spirit, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I having guess... a hard time wrapping my head around that, that that none of your experiences, you know, ever gave you PTSD. You were always you always felt like you were in the right place. Yeah. And that's that's amazing. I'll t thank you so much. I'll tell you what. Dick Marchenko, Richard Marchenko, who I still refer to as Commander Marchenko, said to me after a book signing he did uh, in Annapolis, Maryland. That's that's when I met Commander Marchenko and I thanked him for all the training that I got from the SEALs when I was a Marine. And I knew that it was, as I, as I said to him, I said, Commander Marchenko, it was your generation of SEALs that trained us in 1987 at Coronado, California. And we used that training to our benefit on, on the uh, counter-terrorist operation in Okinawa in 1988. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Commander Marchinko looked at me and he was quiet and then his eyes got really hard and he said, Mike, I want you to promise me something. And I said, lay it on me. And he said, listen, promise me you will never stop being a warrior. <laughs> oh. And yeah. And, and then he said, because Mike, I know something about you. I know you are a warrior through and through. Can you promise me that? And I, I reached out my hand and shook his hand. And, and I said, Commander Marchenko. And he said, no, call me Dick. And I said, well, wow. Dick. And that's, you know, his friends call him Dick Marchenko or, or just Dick. And I said, Dick, I promise you, I will never stop being a warrior, brother. And and he smiled and he said, that's that's a damn good thing to hear. And then we talked a little more and uh, he wished me well. And that was some of the highest praise I ever got to because Commander Marchenko, Dick Marchenko is a legendary warrior. And of course, the first U.S. Navy SEAL Team Six commander. So to receive that kind of praise from him was just, it just stays with you. And it, and I hear it. I hear it in your voice. It's, it's a wonderful feeling to have somebody give you that kind of a compliment, isn't it? That you yeah. appreciate yeah. so much. He really exactly. understands what you've been through. Right. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think, again, that goes back to your great question. And your question is fantastic, right? And I have been asked it before, including by that U.S. Army major in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I told her is something that I think may help anybody out there in the, in the audience who's gone through any kind of trauma, right, and has sorrow and grief in their heart, in their soul from that mm -hmm. trauma. And what I said to her was, I said, do you do you understand that all the questions on this form, they really don't mean anything to me, although I answered them professionally, but they really don't mean anything to me. And the major, she was so cool. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, look, here's a question. Have you ever killed anyone at war? Well, I'm a warrior. Of course, I've of course. killed people at war. That's what warriors do. Hello. <laughs> Yeah. And and then it I said to her, very I condescending somehow. Exactly. Exactly. And I and I said, the one question that you need to ask 
is the one question that's not on here. The one question you need to ask anyone coming out of combat is the one question that's not on here. And, and she said, what is it, Mike? And I said, the question is, do you feel good to be alive? Oh, gosh. Yeah, because and, and she said, wow, I've never looked at it that way. We're not trained to look at it that way. Thank I you said, for well, then you need this, Mike. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, and, I, and I said to her, I said, Major, then somebody need just, needs to change your training because I can tell you that one of the things that combat taught me a long time ago, especially in Spain, was be grateful to be alive. What if the answer is no? Where do you go from then there? If the answer is no, then and, and that's and we talked about that. Then I said, Major, if if that soldier or that Marine or that Air Force airman or commander or that Navy sailor or SEAL, right, or commander in the Navy, right, or that Coast Guard, uh, Coast Guard, because Coast Guard sees plenty of action, mm-hmm. uh, especially against drug dealers. I say, if they say no to that. If they say, no, I don't feel good to be alive, then you have to give them all the help that they can get. But them acknowledging that they don't feel good to be alive is in itself a good step because they they are being honest about their grief. Yes. 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 Yeah. What do you... (sighs) Do you think they're going to get all of the people out, all of our support out of Afghanistan. You know, I'm, I'm scared. I, I don't want them to just desert those poor people who tried to help us help them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the honest answer to your question, the only answer I can give, especially based on what I saw in, in the field. No, we, the, the American government will not be able to get all of the, of the Afghan of the Afghanis that that helped the, the United States at some point or another in the war out. And here's something t- on reflection that, again, that the media has completely failed because the media wasn't in the field a lot. You know, CNN would come into a fire base, interview the commander, interview the uh, the, the, the ranking uh, enlisted, the, you know, the first sergeant, um, talk to a couple of the soldiers, get a, get a couple, uh, get, you know, 10 minutes of film and, and then, you know, are there any ongoing operations? Well, uh, well, CNN, CNN reporter, there are always ongoing operations. Okay. Well, we'll, we want to sign up for one or two and then, and, and, and then they would be gone and they would miss so much. And then whenever I would talk to anybody from major media in inside Afghanistan, uh, it was impossible to get them to understand, look, there is so much, and this was in 09, there is so much corruption. I remember talking to this guy from New York Times, he just didn't get it. I said, look, don't you understand there is so much corruption here? And bottom line, this is a, this is a clandestine fight. And the, and the, the counterinsurgency merry-go-round is wasting billions of dollars and the best men and women that we have the September 11th generation, they signed up to kill Al Qaeda. They didn't sign up to become IED magnets. And the response I got from him was the response I got from all the major media I dealt with at, at one point or another, because I would see them on my way. I would be going through Bagram on my way to the Pakistan border to, to another sniper unit. Right. What did he say? And, and what he said was, well, you're, you're too strident, uh, Mike. You don't understand the complexity of the, the geopolitical ramifications of what you're talking about. Da, 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 da. And then and I looked at him after he finished and I said, are you done? And he said, yeah. yes, yes. And I will be able to print this in The New York Times, of course. And and uh, I will not cite you because your your opinion concerning the war is is of no real value to the New York times. And I'm the guy who ended up being right about all this, by the way. And I was right 12 years ago. And I looked at this cat and I said, riddle me this. If you are an Afghan kid, 
And you're you're so you're probably Pestu because Pestu is dominant tribe, right? New York mm-hmm. Times guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't call me New York Times guy. I said, oh. OK, I'll call you. <laughs> I'll call you reporter. OK, good. So reporter, you're a you're a six year old, seven year old Pestu kid in a Pestu village. That's dominant tribe. That's 70 percent of country plus. Yes. Yes. I'm aware of that. So good. So let's say it's 2009 and you're seven years old. You were born in 2002 after September 11th. Yes. And your older brothers uh, are talking about joining the Taliban. They're 12, 13, 14 years old. Yes, that's that's about the age the Taliban will recruit the, uh, for their guerrilla fighters. I said, good. So you know that. Yes, yes, I'm well aware of that. I said, good. So you're this seven-year-old kid. And you're in Pashtu village in, let's say, the Nurk Valley in Wardak. Okay. I, I don't know where the Nurk Valley is. Well, that's in Wardak. There's a strong Taliban stronghold in in uh in 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 wardak and that's only uh it's not 200 miles from here it's about 60 miles from bagram really i said yeah you should go there oh no no, i don't think i'll go there i said well he's a taliban stronghold don't you want to talk to him (laughs) and so i said to this cat i said lacking gross courage oh yeah exactly and i said to this cat from new york times i said so this seven, he said, what's your point? I said, my point is that seven-year-old boy is standing in the dust in the winter. And there's snow around him. And the only reason that he's standing in the dust is because a car was parked there overnight. Now the car is gone. And so the, the place where the car was didn't get any snow. Do you understand? Oh, wh- where are you fun. going with this? I said, well, what kind of car was there? Well, what do you mean? I said, what kind of car was there? What do you think? Was it a Chevy? Was it a Dodge? Uh, I have no idea. I said, it was a Mercedes 500 SEL, brand new, black, jet black. And who who was in the backseat of the car when it drove away from his village? Uh, I have no idea. I said, the education minister for Wardak. And he works for Karzai. Now, in a village where the Taliban is recruiting junior Taliban, the education minister shot, showed up the day before, and he had a little powwow with, and, and I'm Native American Indian on both sides, so I can say powwow. Anybody out there <laughs> saying, oh, that's, that's, oh, why is that? no, I'm, I'm, I'm Piscataway and Assateague, and I'm related directly to the Mohican, who are oh one of goodness. our brother tribes. Oh, my so, goodness. Yeah, and, and so, so I'd say the education minister uh, in Wardak had a little, he had a little, powwow with the tribal chieftains there in the Nurk Valley in this village. And then his Mercedes was parked overnight and he rolled out the next day. And I got this straight from the villagers. That's how I know. And it's not going to get printed in the New York times, which means the truth is not going to get printed in the New York Times. And the truth is Karzai is the best recruiter for the Taliban that the Taliban have, because every time one of his ministers or vice ministers makes promises that they don't keep to the Afghan people, the Afghan people continue to suffer in dirt poor poverty Almost as bad as what I saw in Burma. Well, I've never been to Burma. I said, well, you should do, you should do yourself a favor. Go to the Puck, go to the Karen State, go into mm-hmm. villages burned down by the Burmese army, and then you report on that for the New York Times. And so I, I said to this guy, I said, you don't understand at all. The reconstruction aid has failed. The counterinsurgency has failed. The ANA is penetrated by the Taliban. The Afghan National Police have nearly killed me four times in Wardak. They are penetrated by the Taliban. It was the Taliban that ordered the Afghan National Police to kill me. Yet, by the grace of God, I'm still here. And also, I'm very well trained in how to survive by the American government. The American government did a really good job of teaching me jungle warfare and wow. all kinds of ways to survive when I was in a Marine and in my unit. Wow. And I told this guy, I said, so what do you so what's the point of all of this? The money that has been handed by the CIA to Karzai is doing nothing in terms of taking down Al Qaeda in Central Asia. The Taliban were, and I said to this guy, 
forget about what American intelligence is telling you about the Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. They are linked up. I have seen them in combat together. Now, meanwhile, the New York Times was reporting to the American people in 2009, well, it's, it's a murky situation there in Afghanistan, and some of the people are really, really behind us. And, and there are reports of you know, some penetration and some corruption there in certain uh, Afghan national police stations, but it's, it's not nationwide and la, 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 la. It was right out of the Pentagon public affairs officers' mouths right into the major media. Oh my gosh. And where was the truth? The truth was in the field that my friends died for nothing and were, and were, were IED magnets oh. because of an American strategy that was rooted in the illusion that money can buy victory in Afghanistan. Well, it can't, can it? No, no, no. And... And it and as you're saying, as you're saying, honey, I, I hear you. It is incredibly tragic and incredibly damn sad what is happening. But bottom line, I told an Afghan interpreter in the field in Konar near the Pakistan border in November. He got so pissed off. And then he he he, he gathered his his gang of Afghan interpreters who are all being paid by DOD. They were all being paid by Pentagon to 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 uh then they, they were all stateside right so they they had they had gotten their pentagon contracts and they had come over to afghanistan to be interpreters for the american army and and he, he gathered his gang of interpreters and 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 uh one of them went after my i had two fighting knives on me one of them went after my knives and i unsheathed what? my knives and told them there's a there's about a platoon of american snipers in that hooch near me and all I have to do is shout and they're going to come out with their assault rifles and grenade launchers, shotguns, and maybe even a sniper rifle. Do you really want to do this? And they backed off. But that was the reality of Afghanistan. These Afghan interpreters who, who were so pissed off that I told them the truth. I said, and what I said to them was there are 19 and 20 and 21 year old Afghan college students right now in Kabul, right, guys? Uh, yes, one of them, one of them, uh, one of them spoke. The others didn't. The others just stared at me like like they were going to kill me, which they actually made a move to. And and I said to these guys who were getting paid by the Pentagon, <laughs> and I said to them, "So riddle me this: why why is it that American soldiers are patrolling villages?" in Konar, where we are, and throughout all Afghanistan, and securing villages and staying overnight in villages. But yet, those 19 and 20 and 21-year-old Afghan young men, same age as the soldiers I knew, some of whom have been blown away for this idiotic reconstruction aid. Well, those Afghans in, in Kabul, those college students, they're not signing up to kill the Taliban, are they? Oh, they got pissed when I said that. I bet they, they did. got so pissed because wow. the truth hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It just yeah. does. Yeah. And then they made a move. And that's when I took out my fighting knives. And, and that's when I said what I said. And they backed off. And then a few minutes later, I went into the hooch and I told the, the, uh, the number one sniper there who I'd been on, in, under fire with at Caesar Barmatal what happened. And he, he went right over to the headquarters element on, on that base and uh, had the, the uh, lieutenant colonel uh, ordered those uh, those interpreters to stay like, you know, 100, 100 yards yeah. away from Mike Tucker for the rest of the time. He's on this base. Wow. Yeah, that's how what, that went what, down. Which book is that story in, Mike? That is <laughs> that is in Taking Down Al-Qaeda in the Hindu Kush, which New York wow. I had to self-publish. And it's a collector's item. Um, Fantastic. Uh, and and I had to I had to self-publish it because New York refused to publish it. The New York publishers, the big five, Random House, Little Brown, uh, Henry Holt, uh, HarperCollins, et cetera, mm -hmm. all of them refused to publish the first version of Taking Too Down Al-Qaeda in the Hindu Kush. Yeah, which was called Bring the Heat. 
And Bring the Heat was the only book, along with Taking Down Al-Qaeda in the Hindu Kush, the later version of it, the only books that have the the, the full, uh, straight up, 100% um, uh, reporting of the siege of Bars Matal, which, which is where I was wounded and, and where we hunted down and killed Al-Qaeda on August the 5th, 2009. The, the U.S. Navy SEAL on that mission, uh, who I named in the book as Ishmael, and with all special operations, I never named their names. You might be familiar with a book called No Easy Day, co-written by Kevin Moorer and a U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6 commando who was on the raid to kill bin Laden. Oh and Moorer, Kevin Moorer did not make one cent from that book, as he should not have, and and uh everything was good and right and just about the Pentagon decision mm -hmm. to deny Kevin Moore all the money on that because Kevin Moore did the one thing as a writer you never do. You never put any real name of anyone in special operations, U.S. Navy SEAL, oh Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, MARSOC, Marine Special Operations, you never put them on the public record because well, then that puts a target on their back. So why would he have done that? Surely he we, knew better. He knew, he knew better, but he only cared about the money. And then karma came down on him like a, like a tidal yeah. wave because he, he didn't make one cent on that, on that book. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, honey, with all the incredible stories of service that that you have given us to ponder and and think about for years to come we can't thank you enough for this glorious entertaining side of you know a, a warrior's life my goodness and and a, and a poet warrior at that and lover of peace i'm the dichotomy still you know doesn't escape me <laughs> many thanks honey so many thanks you i are, have to tell you right? yeah i i cannot i cannot tell you how much a joy and a pleasure uh this has been and would would adore to to be on your program again the next uh, all... anytime mike anytime and especially when the new books come out I want, yeah, absolutely. I want to know as soon as Paco and Giselle is out and the other one after it. Oh, yeah. Paco and Giselle <laughs> rocks. Love rocks. Yeah. Great. The, the, the love story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, my friend. I'm going to let you go so I can take my little uh, five little monsters out for their walk around the pond. And I will. Um, I will. I, I just can't wait for our audience to hear this. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing with us, honey. Thank you so much. And we'll be in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much, honey. And God bless you and your husband, all your listeners. And may the good saints protect you and the devil neglect you. <laughs> you know what we say in, in my band? <laughs> we, we call a toast to our real friend, Champagne, and to our sham friends, Real pain. <laughs> My friends, before you go, would you please give Mike Tucker the joy and honor of reading his stories by choosing any of the dozens he's written, which are now on Amazon.com. He fills in a lot of the mysterious blanks in history and enlightens your sweet little soul with the truth about life as an American warrior. Just plug in his name, Mike Tucker, and Rogue, for instance, R-O-G-U-E, to get started, or any of the titles you heard here on the Cannabivarum podcast. His stories are ultimately about love. Although they're coming from one of America's finest secret counterinsurgent operatives. I'll have some links in the show notes, but please let Mike know how much you enjoyed his conversational series on, on the Cannabivarum show when you order your first book. Click on the show notes for all that info.
You've been listening to another Cannabivarum podcast with 21st century cannabis shaman Honey Smith Walls about the importance of using safe hemp and marijuana products. The process of taking your records with your symptoms and diagnosis to a cannabis specialist can lead you to the correct cannabinoid therapy for your best results. Otherwise, you're just your own guinea pig looking for answers without any foundational knowledge or ability to determine the best choices. Unless otherwise proven by a reputable third-party lab test, please be advised that all street weed is contaminated. It may do grave harm to a patient with a delicate immune system. I challenge you to check the veracity of my statements in each episode by checking the medical citations posted on my podcast blog at the cannabavarum.com website. That's C-A-N-N-A-B-A-V-E-R-U-M dot com.